Conspiracy theories, government deception, and alternative facts. This is the subject of an Epic's original docuseries about Watergate. This is Slow Burn, based on the award-winning podcast host Leon Nafalk explores the conspiracies, deceptions, and stranger-than-fiction people that set the White House on fire. Watch Slow Burn every Sunday night at 10, 9 central, only on Epics. But everyone that I've spoken to says they're going for Biden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Do you think, what do you think about, like, Bernie Sanders and Tom Steyer? Bernie Sanders, he's the old man, right? <laughs> they're all old. He's too old for this. Hey, Nerdcasters, I'm your host, Scott Bland, and we are talking elections, elections, and elections on this episode. South Carolina on Saturday, Super Tuesday on Tuesday, big surprise there. And we're going to start off by heading down to South Carolina with Politico reporter Eugene Daniels. You tricked me, though. <laughs> you tricked me. <laughs> Eugene, what sweet lady did you trick? <laughs> My 82-year-old grandmother, Nana. 82, honey. That's why I'm tired. <laughs> Her name's Ruby Brown. It's the truth. I'm telling you. So on a recent trip for reporting, I went to South Carolina, and I couldn't resist stopping by because who can pass up for our chicken mac and cheese collard greens, which she made for me? I was born here, mm-hmm. raised here, and I left here in 1957, and I went, I lived in New York mm-hmm. until 1999. Mm-hmm. In 99, after she retired, she moved back to Bucksport, which is a tiny town. One way in and one way out. (laughs) It's unincorporated in rural South Carolina, right outside of Myrtle Beach. Small town. I looked, I was looking at the census from 2010, and Mm -hmm. it said it had like 800 people here. Oh, it's more than 800. No, I don't think so. That's what the census I think it is. (laughs) Sounds like there's actually a little disagreement here about just how small Bucksport is. (laughs) There are more than 800 people in Bucksport. It's not by much, and I never see them, no matter what Nana says. She's going to kill me for saying that. (laughs) So tell us about your Nana. Is she politically minded? She always votes, but she's not a big fan of politics or politicians at all and has very strong opinions about both. Like a lot of people. <laughs> yes, exactly. They talk too much and they read lying and stuff. Oh, the politicians. Yeah. So the entire reporting trip was about the fractured black vote in South Carolina, which right now seems split between Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Tom Steyer. Now, you know, we're doing a story about black voters in South Carolina, and you are a black voter in South Carolina. And in South Carolina, seniors can actually send in their ballot and vote early. I did? Yeah, you did already. <laughs> Who'd you vote for? Biden. And Nana, she's part of the supposed firewall that Joe Biden says he can win. I never thought that a black person would ever be president. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy that God let me be here to see this because I didn't think I would ever see that. I really didn't. Mm -mm. And I like him. I think he did a great job. Mm -hmm. And that's why you like Joe Biden. Yeah. And frankly, he has to win and kind of win big in order for his campaign to have any chance moving forward. And I like what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's looking out for us old folks. <laughs> <laughs> Her biggest issues, Social Security and Medicare. When you think about the issues that people are thinking about that are your age here in South Carolina, mm-hmm. when you're talking to people, what are the things that they, they care about the most? 
Social Security, Medicare. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And does your Nana have a sense of who everyone else in Bucksport voted for? According to her, Biden. Everyone that I've spoken to says they're going for Biden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so. Do you think, what do you think about, like, Bernie Sanders and Tom Steyer? Bernie Sanders, he's the old man, right? <laughs> they're all old. <laughs> he's definitely one of the old men. Lots of boomers in this primary. That's right. So, Eugene... As you mentioned, South Carolina, we've seen Biden polling well. We've seen Sanders closing in in some polls, although maybe that's changed a little bit in the last few days. And then I think surprising to a lot of people just watching from the outside, Tom Steyer also polling well. Yeah, you wouldn't think it if you're not paying attention like we are. But Steyer has been spending millions and millions in South Carolina on ads. His wife, Kat, actually moved to Columbia and has a home there. She just had a housewarming party a couple of weeks back. Um, and I spoke with Columbia City Councilwoman Tamika Isaac-Devine, who decided on Warren, endorsed Warren, but was very, very attracted to Steyer. That's interesting. You've got the the candidate who spends probably the most time of anyone, well, maybe except for Bernie Sanders, talking about billionaires and kind of going after them and then one of the billionaires running. Right. Exactly. And the thing that's interesting is when you talk to people about Steyer in South Carolina, they don't care that he has money. It doesn't seem like that is, you know, an anti-billionaire conversation works on especially older black people. They want someone who's speaking to their issues. And in South Carolina, they want to see they want someone who they've talked to and seen. And Steyer has spent so much money there, more money than um, any other campaign and also more time there than any other candidate. And yet, when you think about who's kind of spent the most time in front of and in the minds of Democratic voters in South Carolina, who are majority black, it's got to be Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden. Black voters make up 61% of the primary vote in South Carolina. That happened in 2016. And it's looking like that's going to be on track this year as well. Biden is the name that they all know. They like him because of Barack Obama, but they also talk about that he's come down for years before. He is someone that they've seen and touched for decades. And for black voters who spent a lot of time being very pragmatic, they worked very hard for the right to vote. And so they want someone that not only that they know, but someone they think can do the job. They've seen him in the Senate. They've seen him run committee hearings. They've seen him have Barack Obama's back and curse in front of Barack Obama with Barack Obama, hug Barack. <laughs> Obama. Um, and so those things really do go a long way. I think we talked about this a few months ago, and you mentioned to me that it, it's literally you walk into a lot of houses in South Carolina, and there will be a picture of Barack Obama in the house. And in a lot of them, Joe Biden is in the frame. Exactly. He is there one in the same to a lot of people. And they don't say Vice President Joe Biden. They don't say former President Barack Obama. They say Barack and Joe. And that that's who they know. And there's a there's a connection there that they don't have with a lot of the other candidates at all. And we dug into this a little bit earlier, but that's why this is such an important moment for Biden. Right. He's actually he's run for this is the third time he's running for president. He has never won a state before. And if he doesn't win South Carolina on Saturday, I think. He will never win a state. I think right? that's the case. And, and, and with South Carolina, for me, my gauge is that not only does he have to win South Carolina to move forward, he has to win big. He has to make it very clear that the black vote is actually this firewall that he's been talking about. He has to win probably five or more points. If he wins by six, seven, eight points, which we're seeing in a lot of polls, even a poll that came out on Thursday, um, we are, we're seeing him beat by like, beat people by 20 points. If he does that, that changes the race completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that it looks like Biden has been 
He's been leading in the polls. It's been narrower in some. It seems it's been larger in some others lately. How is the rest of the the field setting up in South Carolina? Yeah, it's looking like Joe Biden's going to win. Bernie Sanders maybe second, and Steyer third mm. um, because he spent so much time there. But third may not mean that he gets a delegate. He hasn't. Steyer hasn't gotten any delegates in any of the other states either, and so the return on investment for him for all this money he's spending is very very low, and that's not great. Black voters tend to be a little more moderate, conservative. They're very Christian, um, especially in South Carolina. I went to church with my grandmother and have for years. And so talking to everyone there, they've been talking about electability a lot and this concept of electability. They are trying to think strategically and have been thinking strategically for a long time. The problem is this time around, white voters are doing the same thing. You have white liberals that are doing the same thing, spending a lot of time trying to gauge how other people are going to vote. And it's that's just a big mess. <laughs> it is, it's, it's a mess. And, and you know, I talk to people and they, they worry about the effects of it on democracy, right? Because if you're not just voting for the person you like and you're trying to gauge, like, are you putting up the person who actually represents the party in a real way? Because if it's just someone who can win, you know, does that person speak for the majority of people in the Democratic Party or not? And that's something that's been kind of unclear when, when you talk to voters about electability. Yeah, the psychology of this primary has been uh, – I mean, I've talked to some of our reporters on the road. Yeah. <laughs> the relayed stories of just voters like breaking down in tears while yeah. like, trying to They're so stressed out. Yeah, they're, they're so stressed out. They're really stressed out. So we've kind of broken down South Carolina. Three days later, Super Tuesday, 14 states and the Democrats abroad, I guess, and – American Samoa, 14 states all across the country. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think too many people are are, – too many of the candidates are traveling abroad or or to Samoa. But but we've got the candidates spreading out all over the country getting ready for this kind of first big nationwide moment in the primary. Obviously, what happens in South Carolina is going to set up Super Tuesday a little bit. But, you know, can you talk us through that a little bit? Actually, how all the early states are setting up Super Tuesday. Yeah, so we've seen Bernie Sanders – do really well in Iowa, New Hampshire, and kill in Nevada. Iowa's still kind of messy. Just Iowa. I don't want. To, I know we don't want to talk about Iowa a lot more than we are never again. <laughs> never again. Um, but Iowa has it, it, it was so messy that people kind of just ignore it a little bit. Um, not the Bernie Sanders campaign or the Pete Buttigieg campaign, who are still kind of going back and forth for who won it. And so that's you know you have Bernie with all this momentum, and then South Carolina, where Joe Biden is poised to do really well there. What that says, if Joe Biden does really well in South Carolina is that he has the black vote. What we saw with Bernie Sanders in Nevada is that he's able to build a coalition that's more diverse than he was able to do in 2016 and more diverse than people think. Specifically with Latino voters. Exactly. And that's something that, you know, you talk to Latino voters and they feel ignored by the Democratic Party a lot of the time, but they are huge and they are the fastest growing population in the United States. And so Bernie Sanders and his campaign has spent a lot of time talking to them and working with them over the last year. And so that's why when you look to Super Tuesday, when you go to states like Texas, when you go to states like California, those look more like Nevada than they do South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And those are states with huge delegate counts. Mm-hmm. And so he is going probably going to do really well there. And Biden is going to probably do really well in the more southern states, states like Alabama, where there are a lot of black voters. Mm-hmm. We've got Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, all on Super Tuesday. And then, and then you've got like Virginia and North Carolina, which I think are 
like a little bit in between right. basically in terms of what their electorates look like. Right, right. There's no clear, you know, winner there moving in going into it. Yeah. And then you have Bloomberg. You right. have former New York Speaking of there. scrambling the expectations, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. He's messing everything up. We've seen him in two debates so far, debates that have been largely attacks on him. Um, and he hasn't done really well in any of them. But he's also spent a half billion dollars. And so you exactly <laughs> there is a since that, for me, when you watch the debate, you're like, wow, look at him getting like, kind of destroyed on the debate stage. However, how many people are watching the debate versus how many people are seeing Bloomberg ads? For months. Exactly. <laughs> for months in these Super Tuesday states. And the it can't even be close, right? Like there are millions and millions of people watching these ads um, and, and being blanketed with these ads all over the country. And so there is no – it, it will be hard to convince me that his debate performance is going to destroy him. It's going to be whether or not people really come out for Biden, really come out for Bernie Sanders. And also, there, you know, we have other people running at the race. Too. Absolutely. No, we just had a story Thursday morning about how Pete Buttigieg is trying to rack up delegates in different congressional districts, even though he's really not expected to win any states. Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar have their home state primaries. So that's kind of a, you know, potential last stand situation for uh, for them. And it's – I mean it's really interesting. The the way this all kind of shakes out, we talked a lot about states and, and here and there. But it's all about the delegates, right? It's – you know, you win – you can win delegates statewide. You can win delegates in these congressional districts. And it's totally fluid and messy about how to do that because you have to get 15 percent, right, in these areas either statewide or in a congressional district to get the delegates there. And if, you, you know, you've got people clustered around like 12 or 14, 16, you know, a couple points here or there could really shift things in terms of just how it looks like, you know, who's emerging from this mix of, of these demographic strengths and weaknesses and all these different states yeah. on and, Tuesday. And, and the thing about the delegate game is that when you look to 2008, right, um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are heading into these states. Barack Obama did a better job of playing the delegate game than mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton did, right? And Buttigieg has, we've watched him kind of try to nip at the edges in rural areas in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, and he's done well in those states. So he's gonna, he's going to continue to try to do that. But the issue with these states for Democrats is, unlike Republicans, they don't have any winner-take-all states. Yeah. So after Super Tuesday, if someone has, you know, if it's not close in a lot of these states, if Bernie Sanders does really well in Texas, does really well in California and starts to, like, slip away with it, it's going to be hard for people to catch up. So Super Tuesday is kind of where we're going to see, one, could we have a contested convention moving forward? Or more importantly, is someone just poised to take it all the way? Yeah. No, and, and the flip side of what you said, right, it's going to be really hard for someone to catch up because of the proportionality. It's also really hard to pull away, right? Right. Unless you get a situation where, you know, all those people clustered around 15 percent. If, you know, if if Sanders is able to pop above in, in his good states, California especially, mm-hmm. right, so big, and everyone else is just like a little bit below 15, then all of a sudden that's a huge delegate hall for him, right? And I, you know, a couple nights ago, I, I was uh, sitting at home and because I'm a huge nerd, I was making a little spreadsheet about, you know, what people have to do in the delegate stuff. And, and you know, you've got seven, what, seven candidates mm-hmm. really competing for this. If you come away with a third of the delegates after Super Tuesday, which seems pretty good in yeah. a crowded field, you, st- you then still have to win 60% of the delegates that come after that in order to get a majority. That seems tough. It seems really hard, especially when you have a lot of people who don't seem like they're ready to drop out or even indicating that they're slowing down. Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, who haven't done super well. There's still Tulsa Gabbard running, which people keep forgetting about um, because she hasn't been on, on a debate stage in a really long time. If they 
stick around and kind of make it harder for, you know, the, the top three or top four people to actually move forward, that's going to make it a much harder race than it's already been for us to to kind of gauge and guess what's going to happen and even and even harder for the voters, which is, you know, why this is kind of messy as it is now. Yeah, totally. It's going to be fascinating. I mean, we're really going to get a sense on Tuesday of whether Bernie Sanders has been able to cash in on this early momentum, his clear movement up and becoming that front runner, or whether it it stays muddled and messy. And, you know, it it may all depend on on you know, how many people get just above or below that 15% line in California and Texas and a, f- a few other places. It's going to be it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be nuts. Eugene, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Good job, now. We done. I told Thank you. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> you did so good. I did not. Yes, you did. Nerdcast will be right back after this short break. Get ready to experience a story you probably haven't heard. A story about what it was like to live through the greatest political scandal of the 20th century. The bizarre and twisted story behind Watergate. Coming to Epics is the new original docuseries, Slow Burn. Based on the award-winning podcast, host Leon Nafok explores the conspiracy theories, government deception, and stranger-than-fiction characters that set Nixon's White House on fire. Watch Slow Burn every Sunday night at 10, 9 central, only on Epics. All right. Now, we talked plenty of presidential politics so far this episode. But the presidential politics, while obviously important and getting the most attention, causing the most noise, is only part of the picture coming up in the next week. And we've got a couple Politico reporters here, James Arkin. Hello. And Ali Mutnick. Hey. Who are joining us to talk about the crucial House and Senate primaries that are also starting on Super Tuesday. Democrats in the House and Senate eyeing seats they hope to flip, Republicans trying to leverage President Trump's popularity in the the base in their districts. We're going to talk about it all. Hey, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. All right. So let's start off this way. What's the most important and or interesting race, hopefully both, that you're watching on Tuesday? And tell us why and what's going on there. James, let's start with you and the Senate. Yeah. So I would say uh, most important and most interesting, all wrapped into one, is definitely the Alabama Republican Senate primary. Uh, You've got uh, Alabama's uh, Republicans' best chance by far to flip a Senate seat and create a little bit of a buffer for their Senate majority. And that's because they famously blew a race in 2017 (laughs) uh, after nominating Roy Moore. Uh, And Doug Jones, the Democrat, won that race very narrowly. So Republicans think Alabama... We can flip this back, give ourselves a little breathing room on the Senate majority. And they've got a huge muddle going on in their primary. I guess uh, that's what happens when you see this big opportunity, right? Exactly. You, Everyone want wants in. in. Yeah. So you've got Jeff Sessions, the former senator uh, for you know two decades who became President Trump's attorney general and then was uh, not so ceremoniously uh, removed from attorney general and uh, his relationship with President Trump sort of frayed. He's running to try and get his old seat back. Then you've got Tommy Tuberville, former Auburn University head football coach, uh, trying to jump in, running sort of an outsider uh, politics campaign. And then you've got Congressman Bradley Byrne, uh, who is uh, running and Byrne and Tuberville were sort of neck and neck. It wasn't uh, clear which one of them was going to have the lead before Sessions came in. And now it's just kind of a, a crazy sort of mishmash and uh, really difficult to see who's going to make it into what is almost certainly going to be a runoff that's going to go into late May between two of them. 
it's really remarkable. To, I mean, it says a lot about how Sessions' term as attorney general ended, that he wants to go back to the Senate. You know, usually those really high-profile cabinet positions, they, they come from the Senate. They don't go back. And I think it says a lot about how his time in Trump's cabinet ended, that he's trying to go back and, and write a new final chapter for his career, but also the fact that he doesn't have this locked up. That he represented the state for decades, and he... He not only doesn't have this locked up, he could he could he could lose a runoff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it says a lot about what Republican primary politics are like in the age of Donald Trump, right? It's all about who can be sort of the biggest supporter, who can be the most vocal supporter of President Trump, and they're all trying to claim that mantle. Sessions is is trying to claim that mantle despite you know famously uh, losing President Trump's faith uh, when he was Attorney General. Uh, he's basically viewed still pretty positively by Republicans in Alabama. But Byrne and, and Tuberville are both saying you had your chance, you failed the president, and you know we need someone who's a bigger ally of him in this Senate race uh, if we're going to be able to win this seat back. So it's it's kind of remarkable that Sessions is in such a dogfight to to win the seat that he won multiple times, but just speaks to you know his own troubles with Trump and what Republican primary politics are like. All right, Allie, what about in the House landscape, my favorite landscape? What the most important and or interesting, hopefully both race that you're watching on Super Tuesday? Well, I'm a little biased because I just went down to report on this race, but I am watching the Republican primary in Texas's 22nd district where Pierce Bush, the grandson of George H.W. Bush, nephew of George W. Bush, son of Neil Bush, is running for Congress uh, in a 15-person Republican primary. And he's really testing the uh, staying power of the Bush name in Texas, but also whether there's room for a compassionate conservative message in the Trump-era GOP. Yeah, I mean, something you and I have been talking about for a while is if you watch the the TV ads for almost every Republican running for Congress, it's all about Donald Trump. It, and, and to that end, a lot of it's about, you know, building a wall on the, the border with Mexico. Um, that's not the, the Bush family brand in politics, to say the least. Right. And this district has Fort Bend County, and it's one of the most diverse counties in the country. It's growing incredibly rapidly. And so Republicans really feel like Pierce, with his compassionate conservative message, he's a nonprofit leader. He talks about bringing people in, about being inclusive, is the way to hold on to this kind of rapidly diversifying area. But he has to square that with Trump, and he's leaned fully into Trump. He's completely supportive of Trump, and he says this idea of being inclusive and supporting Trump are totally compatible. What do his primary opponents have to say about that? (laughs) So it's interesting because the name really does put him in a bind. There are people who love the Bushes, who want their brand of Republican politics back, but those are not really the people who are voting in Republican primaries anymore. And if you're a diehard Trump supporter, you know that his father and his uncle and his grandfather did not vote for Trump, and they were very open about that, and they do hold that against him. Mm, That's fascinating. That's going to be a really good one to watch. All right. What what else, you know, looking across the Super Tuesday map more broadly, uh, what are the big themes that that you're watching? There are a few I'm curious about. There's, you know, we just talked about the Trump effect in GOP primaries. That's that's going to play in a lot more races. How Senate Democrats are trying to set up the battleground map for November. We've got some progressive insurgent primaries on the left. James, why don't you take the Senate one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Super Tuesday is sort of the first test that Senate Democrats have in terms of the candidates that they've identified who they think are going to be their path back to the Senate majority. Uh, I mean, they face a pretty tough path. Uh, Republicans have 53, 47 majority. Republicans are on defense, but most of these states are either red-leaning or states that President Trump won. They only have a couple of opportunities in in blue-tinted states. And so they've identified candidates. They've endorsed in nearly every primary. And North Carolina, which, which votes on Super Tuesday, is like a great example. They endorsed Cal Cunningham, a former state senator and a veteran, 
against State Senator Erica Smith. And they Democrats have now spent 13 plus million dollars uh, in advertising for Cal Cunningham trying to get him through this primary. Is that a lot? Million it's here, million an, there? An insane amount of money to, to spend in a primary. Part of that was because Republicans actually formed a super PAC that started spending to boost Erica Smith uh, to try and meddle. Chicanery. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, a ton of money has been flowing around in this race. Uh, Cunningham's been leading in the polls. Seems like he's he's going to be, you know, not have a ton of trouble in, in getting through this primary. But it cost Democrats a lot of money. Republicans invested some money to try and mess with things. And that just shows how important it is for Democrats uh, to get the candidates that they want and how much they're willing to expend, you know, to the lengths that they're willing to go to say these are candidates that we've identified that we think are going to be competitive in the fall and we need to get them through these primaries. Back to the House. We've got three incumbents who could lose. And I think the most interesting one is Henry Cuellar. And Scott, you and I have talked a lot about how real is this primary challenge. His uh, He's got a challenge from a 26-year-old immigration attorney. Her name is Jessica Cisneros. And this is just uh, in terms of background here, this is a long, uh, fairly long-tenured, fairly conservative Latino Democrat from South Texas. Yes, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. But his argument is that he really fits his district. It's rural. It's on the border. It includes Laredo. And he's mostly ignored his challenger in person. He started hitting her on the air lately, which is making attention peak because that's when you're worried when you go negative on the air. But um, I think, you know, his team has said this is not a real primary. This is a Twitter primary. She's got endorsements from Bernie Sanders, from Elizabeth Warren, but her support is not in the district is sort of their argument. Yeah, I mean, this could be a very interesting test, right? I think progressives in Washington have talked about and complained about Henry Cuellar for a very long time. This is really the first time they and others are trying to do something about it. And, you know, I, I have no idea what, what to expect, to, to be honest. I really don't either. It's really hard to handicap primaries like this, especially because we have no idea what turnout is going to be. Yeah. What, is, what are some of the other races that you just mentioned? There, You said there are three yes. where, where incumbents could lose. So Jim Costa in California's Central Valley has a primary challenger. He's also a very moderate Democrat. Uh, he's challenges from a Fresno City Councilwoman. And he's taken it pretty seriously. He's hit her on the air. But that's a jungle primary. Mm -hmm. So, but it's likely only one Democrat is going to advance with the Republican on the ballot in the jungle primary. And then the next one is in Texas. It's Kay Granger in the Fort Worth area has a Club for Growth back challenger. And this is a Republican congresswoman. We've, We've been talking about Democrats facing challenges from the left. This is now a Republican congresswoman facing a challenge from the right. But again, it's a little scrambled right in the Trump era in terms of of how this all shakes out. Yeah. And I think another important thing to watch with Kay Granger is that if she loses, there will only be eight Republican women incumbents running for reelection in November of 11. Two are retiring. I I mean, Allie talked a lot about Texas and just one to keep an eye on is the Democratic primary in the Texas Senate race. Uh, Obviously, Beto O'Rourke surprised everyone with his narrow loss against Ted Cruz in 2018. I don't think Texas is uh, very high on the map for Democrats in terms of, you know, the path back to the Senate majority. But certainly it's a state that Democrats are increasingly uh, thinking will be competitive. Uh, But they've got uh, about a dozen candidates running in that Senate primary. And so it's almost certainly going to go to a runoff. And it'll be really interesting to see. We'll get some telltale signs about the direction of the party, depending on who's in that runoff and and who's who's facing off. A lot of different theories of the case for how you turn Texas blue. And those will be put to the test. No, that that's a really fascinating point. You know, the the dozen candidates running, I think, just like the all the Republicans piling in in Alabama, speaks to the situation there. I mean, obviously, Texas, as you said, not a target for Democrats in the same way that Alabama is a target for Republicans. But I think it says something about the the eyes that 
O'Rourke opened with his close loss in 2018 to to the you know the potential of of flipping Texas at some point in the future that all these people are running. Yeah, absolutely. They see the opening, and there's just a question of what is the path, what is the type of campaign that we need to run to do it. Democrats have about half a dozen House seats they're targeting in Texas. And the big question there is whether the Beto effect exists without Beto. Do all of those new low propensity voters who came out for the first time in 2018 come out again in 2020? And how do you make sure? And in places where that wasn't enough, how can you add to that margin? That's a great question. I'm looking forward to finding out the answer. In the meantime, thank you both for for coming on to talk about it. Always a pleasure. Of course. All right. That's our show. Tune back in Saturday night for a special episode after the South Carolina primary, breaking down the results. And then, of course, we're going to be back with you early next week with a special Super Tuesday recap episode. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amond. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening to the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with you very soon. Mm-hmm.